Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego Anibuju, Kwei Nindaluizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time, revitalizing our cultures, traditions, languages, and practices. But it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And today, we are so fortunate to have with us Dr. Veldon Coburn. Dr. Coburn is Anishinaabe, and while he used to teach at McGill and then Carleton, he just got a new academic post at the University of Ottawa, so I'm thinking in my own self-interest, this means I'm going to get to hear a lot more from him and run into him more because I'm usually in Ottawa. His research has focused on Indigenous politics and policy, but also my favourite subject, decolonization and resistance. His doctorate was also on a topic that I hold really dear to my heart and a subject that my own doctorate was based on, and that's Indigenous identity and concepts of belonging. So, Veldin, congrats on the new post at the University of Ottawa, and thank you so much for being here. Megwetch for having me, and also Megwetch for having been my external examiner on my doctorate. Yeah, that's that's either a good thing or a bad thing, but we, we survived. <laughs> yeah, we did survive. Yeah, yeah no, th thank you so much. And I know most people know about your work, but for the in the interest of the people who may be listening from the United States or somewhere else, maybe you could just introduce yourself in the way that you see fit for people. Uh, well, that's right. I am Anishinaabe. I, I live and I do teach. I'm back home on my own home territory. We are uh, Algonquin. We are unseated, unsurrendered, still resisting encroachment and colonization. And uh, yeah, so my past research was on identity, uh, a little bit on how informal identities have been constructed in, through colonization, how colonization has tried to um, influence us to reproduce that and how we might think about it critically and resist it as we are rejuvenating and rebuilding our nations. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I mean, th just the whole topic about Indigenous identity, it, it, it's so personal to each, you know, to each one of us, we have so many different experiences. There's been so much interference, you know, by colonial systems and, and even ongoing today, people who aren't even, you know, part of our nations think they, you know, they know what's best for, for native people. So um, I'm wondering if you can talk about your doctorate a little bit. I mean, it was quite an honor for me to be the external reviewer because I was so invested in my own doctorate and I really, really enjoy seeing and reading and learning from other Indigenous peoples and the different takes that they have on Indigenous identity and belonging and some of the struggles that we all have because I think we all share very common struggles. I'm wondering if you just talk a little bit more about your doctoral research and some of the issues that um, you had to address. Okay, so um, <laughs> so a little bit of it is, is, uh, is dry stuff that may not interest a whole lot of people because I went to Queens and I worked, um, my primary field was political theory, but with Canadian politics, and, and that, that's where I threw in my Indigenous politics into it. Uh, but I wanted to use other political theory to understand how Indigenous peoples have been constructed <laughs> as, as colonized peoples, 
how their identity has been constructed um, outside of the law. So more in what a lot of people might say is postmodernism, but it's more of the kind of critique of, well, hey, you have the Indian Act, the Indian Act says you're X, but how are you done? How are you socially constructed? So I used Foucault, Michel Foucault, on his ideas of discourse and how power and how modern Western societies have constructed, um, and, and I hate, hate using the term for you know a wider audience outside of academia, but subjectivity, so subject positions as an Indigenous person is, as, um, as racially and culturally constructed. So not just fixed in law, but how they're how a whole lot of structures were introduced through colonialism that kind of made us into something that we never really thought ourselves to be before, all for the purposes of the exercise of colonial power over us. So mm. that's a little bit of the brief stuff. Uh, I could go really long <laughs> and deep into the theoretical stuff and people would be bored to tears. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's okay, because I have tons of really controversial questions for you. So, um, okay, so you looked at Indigenous identity in general, um, and and in very specific ways and in theoretical ways, but also in, in lived reality ways. And I'm wondering if you can talk, you know, just on a, on a very high-level basis, what are the kinds of things that make up Indigenous identity in general? Um, sometimes people think it's only one thing, it's only blood, or it's only the Indian Act, or it's only language, but um, you seem to suggest that it's far more holistic than that. Well, I again, I looked at the way that how the colonizers constructed us, uh, basically, and this gets this will get to I hopefully we'll we'll get to it shortly is mm -hmm. the idea that they have reduced us as national identities as people who are sovereign nations into subnational and outside national and, and outside sovereign identities outside those political identities as racial and cultural identities as they've constructed us as these certain cultural um features and characters in from the view of their own sort of dominance and as well mm. as as the racial characters. so i've always kind of said or thought well you know we we never really th thought of ourselves if you look at the history of race necessarily as as races per se but now what had made it kind of controversial in my mind was was raised in the uh, book um uh the colonial politics of recognition by Glenn Coulthard um, was essentially that we're we're reproducing and trying to play the game of recognition with the colonizer based on the colonizer's terms. So they've constructed us as races and and cultures, and removed us from those sort of um, political identities that where sovereignty can be imbued in. So that was kind of um, where I started, and and. And it becomes a bit controversial because, yeah, mm -hmm. in, in many ways, we do live our lives as racially different. We're racialized and we can't escape that. Um, this is particularly true for those where the heightened and amplified phenotypical expressions of ourselves are, you know, beyond our control. But, you know, white settler society says there's the brown Indian. That's what mm -hmm. that's the that's the marker of difference. And that gets played out in so many different ways in their lives, mm -hmm. um, you know, from discrimination on in the job market to even showing up in the doctor's office to just walking down the street. That difference, 
is a sharp divide between them. So you can't escape that, but I mean, they remove a lot of the um, formal political um, attributes of sovereignty from them and just say, well, you're just a racial minority within the Canadian uh, political milieu. So they do reduce the politics of it that mm -hmm. way in, in a certain sense. And the same goes with sort of the, the culture too. So um, you go way back to how the colonizer and um, uh, colonial authorities have rested upon these ideas of cultural superiority that um, indigenous cultures and within this you can throw in sort of the really superficial aspects and, and I'll talk a little bit more about what mm -hmm. you know the construction of indigenous cultures because they do reduce us to um, really uh, trivial representations of ourselves almost caricature mm -hmm. sometimes is us like well, here's your your what I call the three F's, and not necessarily what I call it, but the three F's: fun, food, and frolic, mm -hmm. or the three D's: uh, diet, dress, and dance. And that's about it. Is that well? Hey, you know, you wore feathers, uh, you ate bannock, and you had a powwow, and and that was about it for your culture. And and but you did speak a, another language. It wasn't as advanced as the colonizers' language, so you're somewhat inferior to us as a culture. And what I take from this is this, this huge construction of our world. And, and all of this, um, even though this is produced in this discourse, it's also matched by a lot of the coercive political force. So a lot of the analysis that has been done on identity looks at the, um, the two ways that, I guess, modern power can be exercised. One is through coercion. And the other one is, as I looked in my dissertation, is through consent. And that consent is actually not really like nobody's agreeing to it. It's just um, usually using like the the Marxist scholar Antonio Gramsci without going into it too deep mm -hmm. is that, well, without killing people and rounding them up and putting them into concentration camps and actually um, giving them a marker, in which they still do. They still give us our Indian status number and, and, and call us an Indian. And we, and we know that is they don't they don't necessarily use uh, warfare they, there's a whole lot of other things that you can say that are really awful that the state does to us based on the fact that they've uh, labeled us as an indian but um for us to say and agree to it it requires a whole sort of produced cultural milieu and that's all produced around and by the colonial authorities and colonial society so we find ourselves immersed in this and we say yeah you know what um, my difference from you are these probably, you know, four or five different cultural attributes. And my difference from you is the, the racial aspect as well. So again, getting back to Glenn Coulthard is that, um, and, and his idea is to abandon this, you know, playing the game of recognition is saying like, I am, you know, in order for me to prove that I am Indian, I have to prove it on your terms. And that's basically in those two sort of, um, dimensions, the race and culture. I mean, you really kind of hit the nail on the head here when, um, you know, because there's been so many Indigenous people and, and yourself and Glenn and and so many others, you know, trying to fight this, this push towards putting us into a cultural bracket so that, you know, it's the Minister of Heritage and Multiculturalism that deals with us on on language, as opposed to, say, the Minister of Intergovernmental Relations, where we're talking about, a, you know, a nation-to-nation -nation or 
you know, government to government kind of relationship. And, and I think um, that really infects the way all of Canadian society looks at us. So it becomes, like you said, almost stereotypical you know if you see someone wearing feather earrings or you know they're wearing a native shirt or something that that brings home whatever the stereotype is versus what about the person who's you know trying to nation build what about the person who's you know developing laws and policies in their governments it's not our nations are it stops at the line of what you said you know culture and dancing and and drumming and it f- forgets that we also have laws and rules and politics and governments and trade networks and international relations and all of these things that every other sovereign entity does and uh the thing about your doctorate is that you know this problem actually filters down into the individual level too so that both government and society sees us as these racialized or culturalized people so that our own identity has to be tied to what they see as race, like blood, for example. And I'm wondering how you can talk about how problematic the sole consideration of blood is when it comes to defining who we are as sovereign peoples or sovereign entities. Well, blood is introduced. Well, blood, you, you can go back to just the the moral considerations of it is it's it's fairly arbitrary and and mm-hmm. in the first place is that well i don't think we've ever really understood ourselves as and and it's become more technical too as as kim tallbear's work is as shown right and you start seeing it played out in so many different ways these days especially within the algonquin nation and our current land claim with individuals who are getting dna tests who are reaching back yeah. through through the ancestors to find one tenuous ancestor so there's the de facto sort of blood quantum in there is saying like, I do have some Indian blood in me. Therefore um, I, I do have a say on the extinguishment of the Algonquins title, which is a big issue right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the Algonquins of Ontario is that, well, my community and we've always lived as a community. Um, the Algonquins of Pickwoctagon is, well, we actually started the land claim through a petition to the governor general in 1983 and in the subsequent years, and it's only been in recent years, when we're getting close to um, an agreement in principle, which we did ratify, so it'll be the foundation of the eventual modern treaty, is that all of a sudden, over the last couple of years, individuals decided to find whatever sort of blood they might have, as if that made them part of the, of the, uh, the nation. So they're using race now, they're conflating race with nation when it's convenient for them, but for us, um, we've always had a political community, and that's just one aspect too. So mm-hmm. there's a whole host of things, and there's a lot of contradictions. Is that, well, do white people actually consider themselves on the same terms as like, well, you know what, um, I'm mixed race. Uh, my my dad's white, and my mom is I don't know, uh, or or if they say if I'm mixed British and I'm mixed Scottish. Do yeah. they do they do they give us a do they give us a percentage of their their Scottish blood quantum? Um, no, they'll, they'll they'll think they're entirely white. But for mixed race individuals like myself, who's my dad was white and my mom is indigenous, do I have to consider myself in some ways less indigenous than my mom? Mm-hmm. And then for my children who are who are also mixed, 
are they less indigenous? Are they less Algonquin than me somehow? And then, then there's other contradictions that are introduced through the legislation itself, like the Indian Act. So mm-hmm. um, I'm the first generation mixed. And for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the second generation cutoff, basically after two generations of of mixing and, and and i'm using the air quotes but you can't see. yeah 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 full air quotes <laughs> yeah <laughs> is, is that eventually like I, I i presume just based upon i guess prevailing conditions is that um one of my grandchildren or my children will marry a, a non-indigenous person and therefore they won't pass on the ability to have enough blood quantum per se's to be legally identified by the by the colonizer the colonial states as indigenous and and would i look at that grandchild of mine and say sorry you're just not one of us so we have adopted all these things that um overlook a whole lot of social practices of, of uh laws that we've had we've adopted one another for mm-hmm. example even uh they they seem to homogenize us all too so so you're micmac and i'm algonquin they would let us mix and it would be fine but from a micmac and algonquin perspective we're as different as say like the germans are from the swedish yeah totally yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i mean we we come from different nations and um I guess they don't introduce those kind of racial differences between the indigenous nations, but amongst us, they've homogenized us. And there's also the more insidious thing too. Um, and I think we, we, I, I just sort of touched on it, but left it is that um, there is a lot of coerced national and family breakup because of this mm-hmm. so-called blood quantum. So people forced to leave their community, mm-hmm. um, you know many communities and it's it's only because of well the constructed economic conditions on the reserves or in the settlements or or wherever like in you hamlets or what have you is that they say you know what we just can't sustain you so we actually have to thin out the population based on the formula that the colonizer imposes upon us we've been so um diminished in our capacity and this is the coercive part where it's not mm-hmm. like just like um sort of a, it's it's not like we're going along with their culture but yeah so there, there's a lot of contradictions and there's a lot of issues that just are so detrimental but um mm-hmm. at times we have our hands very much tied well, yeah, it seems like people are being forced into a no-win situation when the government comes and says, hey, in fact, you're allowed to make your membership code include as many people as possible. But by the way, your contribution agreement for, you know, housing and social and education, that's only for the status Indians and only for the ones that live on reserve. So it puts the bands in a really tough situation. Now some go ahead and and have inclusive memberships other do not others do not but um the same thing is is playing out in the united states i mean gabe galanda is is one of the indigenous uh lawyers down in the states who works with lots of the tribal governments and he and many of the the native governments down there have been trying to fight against something called tribal disenrollment so they use a different kind of terminology and it kind of works in a little bit different way from what we have 
uh, you know, our First Nations, those who, the, you know, some of them that are exclusive, uh, try to write the code so that the person doesn't get in to begin with. But you have some of the tribes in the U.S., um, not all of them, but some of them, who actually will take people who are currently on the rolls and disenroll them and also prevent new ones from coming based on things like blood quantum. And it's for the sake of preserving finances or controlling who gets distribution from different economic development projects. And it's it's devastating to families. And I think too often, you know, um, you know, American governments and Canadian governments, we all talk about this like they are academic subjects, like it's just a matter of law and politics and theory and all of that stuff. But we're talking about actual impact on people's lives. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, how does being exclusionary impact people, whether you're excluding based on sex discrimination or racial discrimination in blood or just because you don't want to share the benefits of the community with all of your rightful members, how that impacts people. Right. So uh, basically, yeah, you begin from the exclusion, the breakup of families, basically. And it's not just like, hey, this is um, a bad situation and, uh, you know, we're just not going to talk forever. They'll probably mm -hmm. carry on some relationships with people still left in their community. But the, the horrific experience of, of marrying out for Indigenous women over the past, um, you know, has basically been, uh, and, and we wouldn't accept this kind of anywhere, but it, it is forced exclusion where in most cases was, you know, pack your bags and get out of this, this town, mm -hmm. right? So um, you're looked upon as sort of a race traitor, which is... Uh, you know, uh, also kind of insidious as well. Yeah. But um, not being able to live next door to one another. So um, mm -hmm. a friend of mine, well, at, at Carleton, for example, it was um, Kehente Horn Miller and her, her mother and, and her, her daughter, uh, Juanique, who had houses, one being built for Juanique at the time and her mother, and the backyards were facing one another and they were looking forward to growing up with the grandchildren running back and forth between grandmother's backyard and and just having that but for those again yeah for for other issues that i won't get into the sovereign issues mm -hmm. determined by ganawage is that it, there is something very insidious about the breakup and and um separating i guess relations like that um Others, financial deprivation as well, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes breakdowns of marriage and forcing women and children out of communities. Um, the other times is uh, economic deprivation as well through, well, whenever there's a windfall, you're looking mm -hmm. at, you know, those in the United States who say, you know what, let's kind of shave off, you know, let's thin out the herd a little bit because that's less pieces of the pie that we have to give out and more for us. Um, this is particularly evident um, with like back dealing, back backroom dealing, um, uh, the puffy indigenous men who are in the boardrooms that mm -hmm. get to see the details of, say, impact benefit agreements mm -hmm. um, and not disclose to community members. And then, well, put it to a referendum or start just kind of um, uh, denying certain families. So... There's one out in British Columbia right now. They, I think they're expecting 
some natural resource development, maybe pipeline, and they've been anticipating it and they've denied, you know, almost half of the community. That's awful to deny like anyone in your community who's really a rightful member, but to, to deny such a high number of people. I mean, wh- what does that mean for their future? I, I, it depends on what kind of social taboos, but I mean, it's almost mm. unavoidable is that small communities that rely upon blood quantum uh, almost are nodding towards the future of how to keep the pool narrow. And if it's a small community and only those and those that you can pass on to have to generate from within, um, so there's one one thing, and then you know they'd have to deal with it maybe several generations from now. It also you know restricted to race. You're not really, um, you know, there's a whole lot of issues about self determination, and and again, it's race and not necessarily a political membership of uh, like citizenship. So if you want to get to the national regeneration mm-hmm. and generation of political community, the the formal political identity would be as a citizen, as a member of a civic political community as a nation as a sovereign nation and that comes with different rights but a lot of indigenous groups i guess yeah when they see dollar signs is close the ranks um but again we've also seen that here in the algonquin community is that it's been a free-for-all for people who are trying to shake the ancestor tree and just going through genealogy that um we're not a nation to them we're a race so therefore people who see this modern treaty and negotiations, and it's not even going to be any individual per capita payout. Um, it's going to reduce us to so much, um, to like so little actually, about 1.3% of our territory. And uh, people just think that uh, they can access, you know, our political community through their racial calculus. So, Well, it, well isn't that the bitter irony of, mm-hmm. of, you know, a, because race doesn't come from us or, you know, these notions of blood quantum, which, as you know, they're a complete fiction. There's actually right. no basis in science. You don't get a percentage from your mom and a percentage <laughs> from your like, that's not how life works. But no, no. the bitter irony is that, you know, because of colonization, some of us have adopted these ideologies and not even knowingly. I mean, there are some, as you know, some of our communities who have grown up for generations thinking these things, thinking they actually come from their grandparents or their parents because they heard them say that when it actually doesn't come from us. But the bitter ironing of the irony of adopting race and blood is, well, if you're going to adopt blood and that's the sign of legitimacy, then all of these frauds, the fraudulent Métis groups and the wannabe groups and all of these other fraudulent groups who can say, look, I have my one drop of blood, allegedly, mm-hmm. um, then that lets them in. And 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 so in an attempt to be exclusionary, you actually dismiss your rightful members and the fraudulent ones have an opening that they wouldn't have had before had it been about a sovereign political, or what does RCAP, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, call it? An organic political social community or something like that? Right, yeah. Yeah, again, after 400 years of transforming the cultural milieu in which we find ourselves, and and also you have to point to the fact that they they coercively dismantled most of the cultural and social, as well as the formal political institutions that Indigenous communities and nations had. 
So you do, and this is where I get back to the idea of consent is like, you, you're, nobody's actively consenting to this, is mm-hmm. that, but, but you, you go with the flow basically. And because you don't really have another culture to step out into today. Like, uh, you know, I'm not going to step out the front door today and say like, you know what, I'm stepping into uh, my Algonquin culture. There's a lot of things you can do differently, right. In your individual actions, but the yeah. sort of um, foundational cultural structures that colonial society has instituted uh, and some of these structures basically or the way that we uh, understand ourselves the more informal institutions like uh, racial identities becomes normalized and that's where mm-hmm. i get back to foucault is that the um the power of normalization through culture has has had almost you know as great as effect so i mean there is the course of an ugliness that um the violence that's still inflicted on us based upon labeling us as indigenous people but there's also sort of the um idea of us reproducing the cultural coordinates of colonial society within our own um Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, well and you know you've been talking about different things uh here you know and and how people perceive membership or citizenship or inclusion or belonging like there's all different words for it and in what particular context but oftentimes what what really upsets me both in a U.S. context and in a Canadian context is when government officials kind of you know co-opt the conversation with Indigenous leaders and make the conversation and consideration all about burden. Here's the burden to your First Nation or tribal government, should you allow more people? It's gonna cost more, it's gonna be hard to manage, you know, you risk us not recognizing. It's all about, you know, potential negatives and they never talk about the actual benefits. Like in a Canadian context, having more people on your band list actually gives you more power to negotiate a different contribution agreement, for example. Um, and and the same with, if you look at just governments in general, so not at the band level, but actual like the Mi'kmaq government or a, you know, a Dakota government or something, you're talking about more citizens, more people, co- you know, contributing, more people who will stand on the front lines to defend land, water, or identity, more people to contribute to rebuilding our nations versus knowing that you're marching towards legislative extinction for the sake of immediate economics. Right. So that's probably the the the, the end point of, of the arc that I don't explore in my dissertation, but mm-hmm. that's always the, the, the politics that are in my mind because... Um, if you have people who are Canadians who say that, well, we're Canadians today, but rather if, if, um, we were indigenous, uh, sovereign nations, perhaps we would be in confederation with the, the crown, some wannabe, some don't. Um, mm-hmm. but if, if, if it were the, the Algonquin nation, for example, and people living here would say, you know what, I, I moved to Canada or I was born and raised in Canada, but I actually don't want to be a Canadian national. I want to be an Algonquin national. So they would join our political community, irrespective of race. Mm-hmm. But but again, they they would be loyal to that political community, in the way that um, you know we do have our citizenship oaths for new citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it introduces ideas of those who are born within the political community itself. So um, you're born into citizenship, but there would be 
um, a loyalty and, and faithfulness to it. Like, you know, you don't have to have necessarily like treason laws that, hey, if, mm. if we're in negotiations for a land claim and you choose to side with the crown, we're going to execute you or something, you know. Um, but there would there could be grounds. And um, this is what I think about, too, is that um, unlawful grounds is like, how do you, and this is kind of an idea that comes up in the United States and some like right-wing groups floated is that um, if you're treasonous or if you go and fight overseas with ISIS, you lose your citizenship. But the United Nations, and I, I think every country is kind of um, um, signatory or most of them around the world, is that everyone has the right to a citizen or mm-hmm. be a citizenship and a member of a nation, is that you would face, I guess, those and that um, sort of punishments or sanctions, but that's only a really ex- um, mm-hmm. extreme situation. So how you deal with your own citizenship, that's also part of self-determination and exercising mm-hmm. sovereignty. So you exercise sovereignty over your own people. As we have it right now is that, well, we have a membership code and, and we make it almost based upon sometimes like um, the, the, the crisis that most communities are living through right now and, and being under the thumb of the colonial authorities that they're dealing with, like INAC, um, some bureaucrat in Ottawa that's taking directions from the minister's office to to really get their way with us, is to you know reduce us to nothing, basically. But if we did have people that are coming here, um, or even those, you know, basically uh, other citizenships around the world, spousal, uh, a lot of bands do have it as well mm-hmm. in their membership code, is allowing spouses. Um, to become members, but they probably wouldn't fit into the funding formulas that they get and what have you. But if you eventually become self-sufficient and um, not necessarily self-sufficient in, in an isolated way in the world, but um, not reliance or, or not under the coercion of the state that is, you know, all, only giving you the crumbs whenever you satisfy them. Mm-hmm. But um, um, with all the freedoms that we had once had before as sustaining ourselves in our own way, is that we would have other people, irrespective of their, their racial qualities, is, is loyal to the original nations. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the original nations, like if, if we look at it just from a purely, um, you know, pre-contact practice, or if we're just looking at traditions and our, you know, pre-existing laws and all of that. I mean, in in every single one that I've studied, and I haven't done them all in the U.S., I'm trying to make my way through it, but there's others, uh, like, you know, Gabe Glenda is one of the ones that I mentioned. But so far, I have yet to find one that as a matter of tradition, as a matter of pre-existing sovereignty and pre-existing law, they had anything but inclusive citizenship laws. So people who married in, people who came and lived in, people who contributed. Um, I mean, some, even like the Iroquois Confederacy, they could absorb an entire other nation. So right. long as that, you know, and that nation, all of those people became citizens and they had to learn the language and and be loyal and fight for the Iroquois Confederacy. I mean, they were one of the most inclusive and and so you know you look at it now and say well uh, well on what basis other than trying to negotiate the the racist and discriminatory laws and policies forced on us by Canada what other way could we justify just excluding our own people uh on a regular basis when that's something that you know our leaders 
traditional uh, and otherwise, fought against Canada for years. I mean, chiefs made and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interventions on our behalf, saying, you can't, you can't exclude these people. You can't exclude these people. Mm-hmm. But Canada just kept amending its laws to make it worse and worse and worse. So I'm wondering, like, let's just take away the Indian Act for a minute and, and yep. take away Canada. And imagine, you know, if, if we're thinking about ourselves as sovereign nations, and we're thinking about citizenship. Mm-hmm. Are, what kinds of things should matter for citizenship, do you think? So clearly, not blood. Right. But mm-hmm. so so what things should matter? Well, there, uh, sometimes I, I struggle with this too, because mm-hmm. I'm not a real fan of Western liberal uh, sort of statescraft. Yeah, but but I do find um, one uh, liberal rights regimes are are required basic human rights, so rights that inherit within an individual. And mm-hmm. uh, most places, um, most of the advanced nations, only kind of in in theory, but because they still do terrible things to their own citizens, is um, the rights of citizenship. Mostly the civic, the political and civic laws is you know being able to participate in democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being able to run for office, being able to vote. So some some of the basic civic rights that we get as citizens in our um, in our full citizenship. Um, social and cultural rights too. Mm-hmm. So and then and then what about like if you look at most nations around the world, mm-hmm. how do they determine their citizenship? First and foremost, it's a birthright. It's by Born, it's um, the 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 Latin word uh, just soli for those who are born on the soil, so they're within the um, sovereign territory, right? Yeah. So, yep. I mean, why does that? Why is that okay for Canada? Why can Canada say, well, you know, Canadians who have kids who are born here, those kids will be Canadians, and no matter how bad the finances get in Canada. We're never going to disenroll a Canadian or we're never going to say, okay, from now on, no more babies are going to be registered as Canadians because we have a huge deficit. I mean, why is that okay for states all around the world? But it's not for native governments in Canada or the U.S. or even in other uh, colonized territories. Right. So they they don't have anything like, you know, a percentage of Canadian blood quantum in them. And and it's like after, you know, there's not a second generation cutoff is that you've mixed or what have you. They Even if um, uh, citizens abroad, so they have portable citizenship, basically. So long as they keep it is they could go and marry and have a child with somebody over, you know, abroad and any other kind of um, nation. And that kid's not going to be less, uh, you know, 50% of what his parent was, you know, <laughs> or, or her parent or whatever their pronoun is. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, and the Canadian state's not going to say, you know what? Um, sorry, but you're you're you've mixed too much, and you're not it's enough Canadian enough. And well, we're just going to cut you off. We're not going to pay for a single thing. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. In fact, we're going to exile you. We're going to have to say like, get out of get out of Canada. They don't imagine, do right? Yeah, <laughs> it's just not. It would never happen. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what we're expected to do of our own people. Yeah, it's it is such a perversion in this that 
it should be shocking to most Canadians that those are the conditions of which we're expected. And it's not just an expect, expectation, um, is that we've, after 400 years of colonization, it just becomes ingrained, right? It just reproduces itself. And it's not just like some mastermind chief um, sitting in some office mm-hmm. and he or she is just like, yes, I want to end this nation and, and rub, rubbing their fingers together. Um, is that is under considerable cultural and coercive forces that make us do the unthinkable? What would be like so unacceptable for Canadians? Yeah, I just it bewilders it bewilders me that this this still goes on today. And you know we're expected to say, well, I mean we're we're expected to save our nations these days and 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 that would take great sacrifice because I, I i look at it and i sort of shake my head but i once saw an article on cbc about indigenous women looking for other status men to you know mm-hmm. produce with and i thought but that's what it's come to that's what is like if if your survival only only is is, only, is contingent only upon this mm-hmm. like biological calculus this that is the only way and uh, yeah i don't i, I, I i'm shaking my head every time and i know my head because it's it's unbelievable honestly Belden, when i talk about this in the public you know you talk about all the issues and you know people sit and listen but it's not until i say now imagine if this is what we did in canada and you just use the exact same thing but in a canadian perspective and they're just it's all flabbergasted well that would never happen and it's it's so shocking and some even laugh. It's just so beyond imagination. It would be funny. Yeah. Except, except not for us. And that, you know, that CBC article about people looking for other status Indians, like, why are they doing that? Are they doing that because they're inherently racist? No, they're doing that because they're thinking, well, Canada says in order for my child to be part of my first nation, I must marry with another first nation in order for that child to have indian status and so on and so forth so canada is forcing this to happen on us and 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 you know your original point about all of this the power of normalization that all of this colonial racialization sexualization discrimination you know the ultimate objective to just legislative out of existence has been normalized. So I guess my my final question to you is, how do we denormalize this for all of our, you know, whether it's tribal governments in the States or First Nations here in Canada, how do we denormalize this? Well, there's there's two, two sort of, well, there's actually three, and it comes from um, two Indigenous academics and, and one academic um, uh, who's not Indigenous, but is, is written on South American, uh, academics is 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 just getting past colonization so it's not just colonization of physical forces occupying our nations so we have militaries and and foreign bureaucracies that are sprouted up here with all their institutions uh, you know their you know their, their laws taxation and their capitalist uh, commercial whatever kind of issues that they have mm-hmm. that are forced upon us but how we participated in it so uh the two that well i've mentioned glenn coltire before is what his is and this aligns really closely to um audra simpson's mohawk interruptus is 
hers is to just interrupt that. And one of the politics of interruption is just a rejection completely of, of uh, colonial institutions. Is we can understand it is normalized. We understand norms. The, you know, the easiest way to understand a norm is to say like, and, and this is, was something that I was listening to recently on a podcast by Michelle Foucault, is that how many people this, this morning considered the option of just going out with no clothes on today? Well, right. We dismiss that as an actual, as an actual option, because one, we've normalized the ideas that, well, you know, not only would it be fr uh, frowned upon um, and ridiculed, and so we police ourselves to not accept that option. Um, so we we do conform. We conform to the norm that we've been normalized to. In the same way that people have just sort of normalized their selves is that, well, yes, it's an option to marry out or it's an option to, um, it is an option based upon colonial institutions is to um, move forward on the self-extinguishment and self-extinction. But for them, the normalization is that actually that's not a real practical option for me um, because you're actually, you're, you're making me extinguish my own nation no longer mm -hmm. coming in with guns and forces and killing us the power of your normalization is actually getting us to do it ourselves mm -hmm. so with audra simpson is saying and and sort of related in, in this way is just just outright reject it the politics of rejection is to within inside your own nations is actual self-determination is saying we're going to get on with ourselves without them and then this gets a little bit to Glenn Coulthard's idea of the politics of recognition of, well, the colonial politics of recognition is they always have us reproducing ourselves based upon their own norms of saying like, well, if you want money, tell us about your racial mm -hmm. composition. Again, going back to the funding formulas, it's only Indians and the only Indians we recognize are these with blood quantum, basically mm -hmm. about this. Uh, so you're always fighting to say like, no, 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 I do have enough blood quantum. I am racially Indian. These are the terms that you only recognize us on is, well, to begin to reject those. Uh, some bands, I've, I don't know how far necessarily they've gone in this sentiment. I, I always look back to the Fort William First Nation where, um, say, Damien Lee, who's a sociologist at your um, institution at Ryerson, well, he's not racially, and again, I'm putting that in quotes, with blood quantum, other ways of naturalization citizenship is, is how he acquired it, is being adopted through his father, who is a citizen of Fort William First Nation, entirely loyal to the First Nation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's, um, I consider him Anishinaabe all the way through. That's how he was born and raised as, as a child. So um, is rejecting that and saying we have our own institutions for bestowing or, or constituting ourselves. We yeah. Have, yeah. We're going to do this on our own and outwardly you'll have to accept who we are because we're not going to, we're not going to be reproducing or um, using your, I guess the terms and calculus that you've imposed upon us for 400 years. Self-determination is about us determining for ourselves. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the core is, you know, the only way to kind of defeat assimilation is to resist assimilation and the only way to kind of defeat ongoing colonization is just this 
constant resistance and rejection and withdrawal from their processes. So it, it's it's scary for some people to do that. I, I, you know, I have a lot of hope because there's some First Nations who are very, very inclusive and there's some First Nations who are working through this with their citizens and trying to figure out the best way forward. Some are trying to do it on an aggregate basis, like a nation-based level. Some are trying to do it on treaty areas. But so for me, there's hope that, the, you know, we're, we're in this conversation. And, um, but the power of the normalization is still very, very, very strong. And the fact that it is still, in fact, the law in this country, that Canada still has an Indian Act that determines who's an Indian in such a way that every single First Nation has a legislative extinction date. So, you know, it's not even about what we think anymore. It's also what is the prevailing law and how is that used as a weapon against us? And I really like your, you know, your idea around you know, adopting what other people are saying about just just get out of this process and determine for ourselves uh, what it is. And we're probably going to make a whole lot of mistakes and we're probably not going to get it right all the time. And we're probably going to have to amend our laws and policies as we go. But that's what sovereignty is about. I mean, every state does that. Every state has laws that it eventually repeals or yeah. replaces or amends and they make mistakes and they're sued and they have to compensate. And But why shouldn't we be able to make all those same mistakes, but do it ourselves? Yeah. And in democratic theory, you know, you're really never wrong and you should expect, um, you know, Plur pluralism within your society too so you look at there's no perfect state out there they're still wrangling with things like you look at canada for example how many bills died on the order paper now that parliament the the legislative session has risen for uh, until the next election this fall and canadian society and that's you know not even the laws that they were trying to impose on us yeah is is the ones that they're trying to figure out themselves so it's, it's the same way. You look at every other political institution around the world, and it's always been this kind of way. Um, some more adversarial than others, and there's other sort of politics that fall outside, like, you know, party politics, and um, depending on the other sort of institutions. Um, but it wouldn't be imposed upon us. And, and that's the thing about self-determination and democracy is, well, you're not really wrong if, if you know, everyone has had their say. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and ultimately, think about it. I, I mean, there's people can get into legal debates, theoretical debates, political debates, and even personal debates about, you know, whether we should be inclusive or exclusive. But at the end of the day, Canada is a genocidal state. We've right. had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission now and the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women say Canada is guilty of genocide. Mm -hmm. Why on earth? Would we allow a state that's a proven genocidal state to determine our futures versus our own people? Like, <laughs> let us just be imperfectly, perfectly sovereign and decide for ourselves because we all know where we're headed if we let a genocidal state determine our future. Right. I always kind of shake my head whenever I see another human rights decision, whether it's from the UN or from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, come down against the Canadian state yeah. because the legitimacy of a state rests upon meeting minimal fundamental requirements. And that is actually meeting the human rights of all individuals yeah. that they are sovereign over. So 
one, whenever I see these decisions, I like the state has lost any, and it never really had indigenous consent in the first mm-hmm. place to claim it. But any kind of recognition internationally should be lost because mm-hmm. uh, over our nations because of the fact that they cannot meet their human rights obligations, which are the very basic for humans. But as a genocidal state, no yes. way. And (laughs) it is not legitimate, like no, it's not legitimate to govern over us or to claim any kind of sovereignty. But yeah, exactly. I mean, and you know, I just, I don't know how, how better to say it. (laughs) I mean, your, your doctoral research, you know, supports that. I mean, all of the people we've talked about today, there's lots of other Indigenous, you know, writers and thinkers and thought leaders and community-based activists who you know, we're all kind of getting to the same place that it's it's more than past the time that we stop letting this genocidal state push us around in the same old ways that they always have. That doesn't mean it's not it's going to be easy or we're not going to have some challenges. Mm-hmm. But I think the more we do it, the more pressure we do, the more we withdraw from their processes and delegitimize what they do. I think it'll be better for us in the end. And that like I really appreciate the research that you've done and and some of the issues that you've tackled. I know, you know, the stuff that we do in academia sometimes doesn't reach a broader audience because it's in the form of a thesis or we have to include, you know, theory and all these other kinds of things that, you know, maybe the everyday person isn't interested in. But what I like about your doctoral research is that you also talk about the issues, like the actual impacts on people and, and what it means at an individual level, as well as the collective. And I think that's, these are really important messages for people. And I hope that you find a way to publish your doctoral thesis or take snippets out of it and publish it into papers that are accessible by people, because I really think your work is so important. And I'm so thankful that you were able to come on my podcast today. Honestly, I looked at the time and I was like, what? It's almost an hour. I could literally talk to you for hours and hours and hours about this. Same, yeah. But I I hope you come back because I think we could have some really good conversations about really particular issues, you know, things that are happening in the media and or in particular communities and, you know, solutions forward for people. Because I think most of the people that are listening to this podcast aren't just interested in all these subjects for the sake of it, but people want to know what what do we do moving forward and you know I I think your suggestions around you know resistance and removal and refusal and just getting out of these processes is probably one of the most powerful suggestions so I really appreciate you being here and I hope you come back definitely like you said I mean it's the conversation and now we can talk about amongst ourselves who we are rather than just being under the state's thumb and and being told who we are. Yeah, exactly. And so dialogue. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what I'll do is for our listeners is I'll put in the description box links to um, some of your more recent articles so they can, you know, follow your work and, 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 you know, get to know where you are on lots of broader issues. Cause you don't just talk about this issue. You talk about lots of issues. Um, that are impacting Indigenous peoples in a really good way, uh, in a really grounded way, and in a way that I think thinks about our people's best interests first. And and I really appreciate that because not everybody is in that situation. So thanks for all of the work you do, Veldon, and for the way you support 
all the other indigenous peoples, be they, you know, academics or activists on the ground or, or community members. Um, we're only going to get through this if we're mm -hmm. all supporting one another. And you seem to keep a really large circle of people. And uh, I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, good. good. So I've got your online verbal commitment that you're coming back. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Belden. Right. Thank you. Miigwech. Thank you all for tuning into my show. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Veldon Coburn. He has so much knowledge and information, research and background on Indigenous identity and belonging that there's a lot to learn from him. So what I'll do, uh, like usual, is post links to some of his work in my description box so you can check out some of his work and uh, maybe follow him on social media. If you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. And make sure to leave me your show ideas in the comments section because ultimately I want to talk about the things that you want to hear about. Um, I'm all, I'm, while I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, uh, you can also access my podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Uh, we can engage in different ways too. You can follow me on Twitter as Pam underscore Palmeter as I talk about different aspects of warrior living. Or you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube where I tackle the difficult political and legal issues facing Indigenous peoples. And I've also started a new YouTube series, which is called the Reconciliation Book Club, where we'll take a book a month and review it and comment on it, engage on it in an interactive way. So I hope you join me there. And I've also started a new Patreon account where uh, you can help support me and the costs of all of my social media, including my blogs, my videos, my podcasts, at any amount that you like for those of you who are able to. And you can access that through my website or through the link in this description box. Thanks so much for all of your support. Until next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliug. We'll